1857, there was a 46-year-old man named Jeremiah Lamphere who lived in New York City. Jeremiah loved the Lord tremendously, but he didn't feel like he could do much for the Lord until he began to feel a burden for the lost and accepted an invitation from his church to be an inner-city missionary. So in July of 1857, he started walking up and down the streets of New York, passing out tracts and talking to people about Jesus, but he wasn't having any success. Then God put it on his heart to try prayer. So he printed up a bunch of tracts and passed them out to anyone and everyone he met. He invited anyone who wanted to come to the third floor of the old North Dutch Reformed Church on Fulton Street in New York, New York City from 12 to 1 on Wednesday to pray. He passed out hundreds and hundreds of flyers and put up posters everywhere he could. Wednesday came, and at noon, no one showed up. So Jeremiah got on his knees and started praying. For 30 minutes, he prayed by himself. Then finally, five other people walked in. The next week, 20 people came. The next week, between 30 and 40 people came. Then they decided to meet every day from 12 to 1 to pray for the city. Before long, a few pastors started coming and said, we need to start this at our churches. Within six months, there were over 5,000 prayer groups meeting every day in New York. Soon the word spread all over the country. Prayer meetings were started in Philadelphia, Detroit, and Washington, D.C. In fact, President Franklin Pierce started going almost every day to a noon prayer meeting. By 1859... Some 15,000 cities in America were having downtown prayer meetings every day at noon, and thousands were brought to Christ. And the great thing about this particular revival is that there is not a famous preacher or evangelist associated with it. It was all started by one man who desired to pray. Chapel Hill, do you have a vision? Do you have a desire to see God do something in your life? the life of your family, the life of your church, the life of your city or nation or even the world? Do you desire to see God shape you into a more effective father or mother, husband or wife, student, friend? Do you have a desire to see God bring spiritual health and wellness to your family, to your home? Do you have a desire to see God impact your neighborhood through your presence and testimony? Do you have a desire to see God display his greatness in the arenas of politics, entertainment, or some other way in your city, state, or nation? Do you just want to see God move in his people and by doing so affect the world in a significant way? I hope you do. I hope that the state of your world, being that it is imperfect, bothers you to the point of desiring to do something about it, to see God display his sovereignty in some way. This kind of stuff is on my mind constantly. I have things in my heart that I want to see God do in me. I have things that I want to see God do in my family and in my community. I have things that I'd like to see him do in this church. I would love to see us be a part of a revival like the one that I was just reading about. But I know that God has what's best in mind for us, and so I want to seek him and his will and what's best in mind for us. And as we've discussed our posture in approaching God, prayer stands out as the most critical posture that we can possibly take. A correct approach to God is prayer. It is prayer that gives us an opportunity to converse with God, to worship Him with our words, 
to seek his face and his forgiveness, to thank him for his provision and guidance, to stand in the gap for somebody else. We've looked recently at 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. It says this, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Do you want to see God hear us and forgive us and heal us? I know I do. So let's do what it says. Pray. But there's more there than to just pray, and that's the part that I want to look at with you this morning. There are steps that we can take on the way to our knees that will help us find the one whom we are seeking and to see him move in our lives. Last Sunday, we talked about humbling ourselves in voluntary submission. What else is essential to approaching God in an appropriate way as we meet him in prayer? Without question, one of the most widely loved Bible stories for small children and 45-year-old Canadian men is the story of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet. Ooh, ooh. But he really never got it. Sad but true. And if you watch him, you can spot it. A doodly-doo. He did not get the point. And that, if I have not lost my marbles, that's a VeggieTales reference right there. Uh, when you have little kids, there's a chance you'll never be able to get that song out of your head. But God, after going to great lengths to get Jonah's attention and respect, gave him a second chance to obey and to go tell the people of Nineveh to turn from their ways. So he goes into the city and he starts telling the people there the message that God has given him. And on the very first day that he was there, this is what happened. Jonah chapter 3 verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And this act of putting on sackcloth is the first step that we're going to look at this morning. We will use the word brokenness for this step. In our approach to God through the act of prayer, we would do well to come to him in brokenness. The people of Nineveh, including even their king, denied their regular clothing and food and drink and put on sackcloth. They acknowledged that they had sinned and in humility presented themselves to God as those dirty on the inside, not just on the outside, and in need of forgiveness. There was no covering up who they were. They were not deceived into thinking that they could impress God in some way with their outward appearance or their behavior. There was no delusion that only the greatest sinners needed to do this. From the least to the greatest, they came in desperation to find this God that could offer them forgiveness. Box elder bug, on the pulpit. (laughs) And that's how we ought to respond when we acknowledge that something, namely sin, separates us from God. In Exodus 33, when the Israelites heard God say through Moses that he would not be going with them from that point on, they panicked. They were very concerned. They got very upset. And it says that they mourned and took off any kind of ornaments that they were wearing. They took the posture of broken people and sought mercy from their God, which he graciously then offered them and continued on with them. Brokenness simply means that we are not whole anymore. It means that something has been separated, whether by desertion or some force that has fractured us, 
without God, we are not whole. We're broken. And if we slow down to think about that, how can we be satisfied with that state of being? But we far too often come to God in a state of fracture because of sin or something else in our lives, and we approach him as if that were just not true. We approach him as if we were whole and in need of something other than being restored to completeness. And how can that be effective in prayer? We come in brokenness because we are broken. We are incomplete. We are lacking something, someone, and we can't stand the thought of remaining in brokenness. And there is so much within prayer that we need to approach this way. Pray for a restoration of wholeness in your life. Join God in his desire to restore wholeness. Let the biblical example of sackcloth sink in when it comes to prayer. Come before God and say, everything is not all right. I need to be complete in your presence. Don't allow yourself to be satisfied with either your own incompleteness or someone else's. Neither fit God's design for his creation. Remember this story, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Okay, so back to Nineveh. We'll find the second characteristic of appropriate prayer there. The king of Nineveh believes God and responds by taking off his royal robes, putting on sackcloth, and sitting in the dust. And then it says he issued a proclamation. Jonah 3, verses 7 and 8. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. He even gets the livestock in on the action. They have to fast and wear sackcloth. That's how serious he's taking this. But he puts another condition on their response. He wants his people to call to God urgently. Now, we talked about this back a ways when I did the sermon on seeking God back on the first Sunday of January. Uh, we are to seek God daily, earnestly, early. There should be a sense of urgency to our prayers, not that we rush through them, not that kind of urgency, but that we do not put them off and that we stay at them diligently. Now, many of us want to see a prayer movement happen in our church. But being Westerners, we want immediate gratification, so our sense of urgency ends up being more of a desire to see it accomplished right now. We have a prayer meeting and consider it a failure if only a few people come. 
Now remember the story from the beginning of the sermon about the guy who started the prayer revival in New York? Nobody came at first. Then a few, then a few more. The key was that he stuck with it. And there are many biblical examples of this kind of urgency. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says what? Pray continually. Pray without ceasing. That's it. Not pray for a while and if you don't see fruit, just stop praying and try fasting. It doesn't say sing without ceasing or fellowship without ceasing or even preach without ceasing. But it does say pray without ceasing. Pray continually. Jesus' disciples had three years with Jesus and what they experienced was so amazing. There is even so much more that happened while they were with him that we don't get to see. John said that if Jesus' teachings were all written down, um, they would fill up enough books to fill all the libraries in the world and beyond. But in the midst of all this time that they had with Jesus, what was the thing that they asked him to teach them to do? Well, in Luke 11:1, 1, they say, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. And what was at the core of Jesus' response to their request? Persistence. He told two parables that lined up with that and taught them that persistence was the key. Don't give up and your Father will answer. Pray with urgency. Pray continually. Now what is that thing in your life that you need to commit to lifting up in faith? What is that vision that you have? Who is that person that is on your heart? What is that thing that you need to see happen What is the thing in Chapel Hill that needs to happen? Will you commit today to praying for something, for someone, every day? Will you trust God to respond to your urgency and dedication that has you on your knees every day, in spite maybe of immediate results? He tells us to keep asking. Back to Nineveh again. Jonah 3, verses 6 and 7. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herd or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. This is the third characteristic of an appropriate approach to God in prayer. Holiness. Holiness. Now note that these three characteristics are also found in the Second Chronicles verse that we looked at. Second Chronicles 7.14 again. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Humble ourselves in brokenness. Seek God's face in urgency. Turn from our wicked ways in holiness. This holiness piece is about choosing to walk the Lord's paths. It's about obedience. It's about following God's way instead of the world's way. And that kind of obedience opens the door for God to answer our prayers. Psalm 66 speaks of crying out to God in prayer and acknowledges one thing that has to be dealt with, and that is sin. Last Sunday morning at the 9 o'clock class, we heard Pastor Simbola teach on the obstacle that sin creates in our communication with God. And there were were great testimonies to back that up, and the psalmist gets this too. Psalm 66, verse 18. 
if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. And that teaching series that I keep referring to from the 9 o'clock class is going to be available when we're done with it, by the way. Um, the church owns that, and we would be happy to loan that out to a small group or any group that wants to study it. It is well worth experiencing, so uh, come and find it if you want it. James chapter 5, verse 16. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And it's sin that stands in the way of our righteousness, our position before God. And we have to deal with that sin in order for our prayers to be fully effective. 1 Timothy 2.8 Therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. And that verse is not just about lifting up hands in prayer. It's about lifting up holy hands. Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. That's what we are singing about this morning. Give us clean hands and pure hearts. Holiness key to effective prayer. Okay, so what about Nineveh? What happened? How did God respond to their brokenness, urgency, and holiness? Jonah 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. And no, God is not threatening Chapel Hill with destruction. The mercy that he poured out on Nineveh was a blessing and he does have blessing in mind for us. He has plans for us. Plans for today and for tomorrow and for the years to come. But he's looking for those who come to him in brokenness, urgency, and holiness so that he can get about what he wants to do with us. He wants to answer our prayers. Sometimes I wish I could see down the road to get an idea of what it is he has in mind for us. But then he gently turns my head back to see what he's already done and that gives me faith and hope for the future. He's done a lot for us, hasn't he? Amen. There's more to come. If we, his people, will humble ourselves, seek his face, turn from our wicked ways, and just commit ourselves to him in prayer. At the beginning of this sermon, I started telling you about the great results of the prayers of a man named Jeremiah Lamphere, who responded to God's prompting and prayed. Well, that prayer revival moved from New York to Detroit, Buffalo, Washington, D.C., and to Philadelphia. One of the leaders in Philadelphia was a young man named Dudley Ting. He started a noonday prayer meeting at the YMCA, and some days 5,000 people would come at noon and pray. One day Dudley stood up and read Exodus 10, verse 11. Go ye that are men and serve the Lord. He then said, I'd rather my right arm get cut off than not give you that word. Later that week, Dudley went out into the country to see some friends. Well, in a barn at his friend's place, he got his arm caught in a corn threshing machine, and the main artery in his arm was severed. They took him to a bed and tried to save his life, but he had lost too much blood. So his friends gathered around him and asked him what he would like to say. He said, tell them to stand up for Jesus. So the next Sunday, his good friend George Duffield 
stood up at church and preached in memory of his friend. He said, I just finished writing a poem in honor of Dudley, and I want to read it to you. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, ye soldiers of the cross. Lift high his royal banner, it must not suffer loss. From victory unto victory his army shall he lead, till every foe is vanquished, for Christ is Lord indeed. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, the trumpet call obey. Forth to the mighty conflict in this his glorious day. Ye that are men now serve him against unnumbered foes. Let courage rise with danger and strength to strength oppose. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. The strife will not be long. This day the noise of battle, the next the victor's song. To him that overcometh a crown of life shall be. He with the king of glory shall reign eternally. There's the posture that I want to leave you with. We've talked in this series about correcting our posture. We will leave this series with the words, stand up for Jesus. But I hope you've discovered, as I have through this study, that when we stand, it has to be by God's plan and his strength. We come to him in full recognition that he is the holy king of kings. We do not approach him casually and throw his name and reputation around as if it were no big thing. We come as the prostitute who fell at Jesus' feet. We come as a knight willfully bowing in humility before his king. We speak to our king from a position of brokenness with a sense of urgency, lifting up holy hands. And then... Our king gets to lift us to our feet, giving us the strength to stand for him, to be his ambassadors in this world. And we will stand strong. Have you checked your posture over the last month? Don't let another day go by without ensuring that you are approaching your king in the most appropriate way and committing yourselves to his will and to his ways. This evening, we want to give you an opportunity to approach him in something that we're calling encounter. I want to invite you to join us for a time of worship and prayer here at 645 this evening. Please do come. Uh, we will provide someone to interact with your little kids downstairs if you would prefer that. But kids are also welcome to join the worship and prayer time up here in this room. We're going to sing together. We're going to come before the throne to do business with God. He's been showing us a lot through this sermon series, through the 9 o'clock class and the series on prayer that we've been going through there and in our own personal lives. And this is a great opportunity for us to respond to what he's doing. So be here tonight at 645. I'm going to ask Peter and the worship team if they will come now. And as they do, let's bow in prayer as we close the message. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the promise that when we come before you appropriately, in brokenness, with a sense of urgency, 
with holy hands lifted up. You have promised that you will lift us to our feet. And that when you do it, we will stand strong. And I ask, Lord, that every one of us, myself included, would take the time to evaluate just how much time we're spending in communion with you and what it looks like. And as we do, we would find that desire to, to come in humility, just to bow before you, recognizing that we need you so desperately. That we would urgently and continually seek your face knowing that that's the pattern you laid out for us through the words of your son, Jesus Christ, that we are to keep coming to you, and you will answer, and we're standing on that promise. And Father, we need your forgiveness for the sin in our lives, the things that are keeping us from entering into true communion with you. And I thank you that through the blood of Jesus Christ, those sins can be and will be forgiven, opening up a channel between us and you. And Lord, I know that when we do encounter you in prayer face to face, you will lift us to our feet. And you will give us everything that we need to be who you created us to be. And when we are that person, we will flourish. In spite of any of life's circumstances, we will flourish through the power of your spirit. Fill us, Lord, with that power. Give us your spirit in boundless amounts. Pour him out on us as individuals and as a church so that we can stand up for Jesus as soldiers of his cross. Thank you, Father, for all that you're going to do in this church, through this church. Thank you that we can look forward with great anticipation because when we look back, we see your faithful hand upon us. We love you and we ask for your blessing every hour of every day and commit ourselves to you again in Jesus' name.